Welcome to the Veterinary Pulse podcast. My name is Jordan Benchia. I'm the executive director of the VIN Foundation. Veterinary Pulse is the heartbeat of the profession. Join us as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics from student debt to mental health and share stories. Stories connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible through individual donors like yourself and our technology partnership with VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. Thank you for being here. This episode, we're having a discussion with VIN Foundation Vets for Vets team member, Dr. Susan Cohen. We share a concept Susan has identified as the red shoes syndrome. Different from burnout or compassion fatigue, she has seen this as a regular occurrence amongst veterinary colleagues. We discuss how to be aware of this behavior, along with tangible tools and suggestions to help. Thank you for listening. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Hey, Jordan. It's great to be with you. Uh, Can you give us sort of like a little introduction? How did you first come to hear about the VIN Foundation, or how were you first introduced to the VIN Foundation? Well, Dr. Paul Pion and I, uh, Paul is a co-founder of VIN. Uh, and I used to work together at a big veterinary teaching hospital in New York. And after he left, we kind of kept big touch with each other. Um, and right after I left that job, after 28 years, I ran into him at a conference. And he told me about VIN and the VIN Foundation, which was just kind of getting going at that point, And said, why don't you do some seminars for us? We don't have anybody talking about your issues. Um, In 2014, the foundation program, Vets for Vets, asked me to start an online support group for stressed out vets. The group started in January of 2015, and we're still going. Wonderful. Yeah, Dr. Paul Payan, the co-founder of VIN and also a VIN Foundation board member. Uh, So wonderful that you just happened to sort of meet up at a conference, and then it led to you and the amazing work that you're doing with Vets for Vets. So I'd like to sort of backtrack a little bit and learn a little bit more about what, what was your path to social work? What, what first intrigued you about the profession and the study? Okay, well, my path to social work came out of both my work and life experiences. Uh, it was personal stuff, the big picture, and then getting annoyed. Um, my first child was born with a lot of orthopedic problems, and in those days, you really didn't have much help. There were services out there, but nobody knew how to access them. And we just by luck stumbled on somebody who knew about some financial aid and a great doctor, things like that. That really introduced me to the whole world of disability and social needs. And after he was done with all his surgeries, I took a job in unemployment insurance. And it was a very unusual office. It was a place where everybody except New York State residents came to collect unemployment. So I got a chance to see a national program with certain requirements built into it that was interpreted differently in each state. And I said, well, this is interesting. You know, each state is creating a a program to fit their own needs that are going to be somewhat different from even the neighboring state. The final straw for me was being in the hospital with my second child. There was a woman in the room with me whose child was born with some severe medical problems. By this point, I knew that there were programs out there for practically everything in the book. And I kept waiting for someone to walk in and tell her how she was going to get financial aid, who she could hook up with, other parents whose kids had this problem, that kind of thing. And nobody did. Not one person came in. In fact, it seemed to me they were kind of berating her for the fact that her child had these problems. And it really made me mad. So when I was ready to go back to work or do something, I decided to go back in social work. And I chose a path that was helping people one-on-one and then looking at the big picture. What patterns did we see? Did we need new programs or did we need to just plug people into the programs that were there? And uh, that's how I got started in social work. And I have to say, one of the things I really like about the Vets for Vets program and the VIN Foundation is that's how they operate too. 
It's so interesting. A lot of it comes from, you know, a lot of our choices in life come from things that we have passions about or things that we are personally impacted with. And it, it seems like that was definitely the case with you here as well. That's right. I think, um, I think it's really important to pay attention to what happens to you in life, but to also try to look beyond just your personal situation and see who else has that problem or what else could anybody do about it. Uh, and I find that that's the way the Venn Foundation works. They listen to their members. They hear what the problems are. If it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, they connect people with someone who can help them. But if the same thing is coming up over and over, lots of people have debt, lots of people are upset about the way things are going in veterinary medicine, whatever it is, they create a program that meets the needs of the people who are out there. But to me, that's the right way to do it. I, I happen to agree, but I am a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, how did your, how did your path of social work um, and your experience from that lead you to the veterinary profession? You know, Jordan, it's almost the same way that I got into social work. I had a, some personal experiences. I got a look at the broader picture and I had a feeling that somebody ought to do something about it, like me, for example. So before I became a social worker, long before then, I had to take my older cat to the veterinarian. Um, in those days, you didn't go all the time if you had a cat, but she was getting older and I thought, you know, she's slowing down a little. Someone should check this out. And I realized the entire time the veterinarian was examining her that I was getting more and more worried about what was going on. If he spent too long looking at her eyes, I thought, oh, she must be blind and I didn't know. At the same time, I'm talking to myself, what's the matter with you? You know, no one has said anything. Why are you being so upset? When it was all over, uh, I asked her, and she said the cat was fine. She would just need reading glasses if she ever read the New York Times. I thought, you know, you're being ridiculous. You have a husband and a job and a child. You have lots of wonderful things in your life. Why are you getting so upset about this cat? And I realized that I couldn't just talk myself out of it, and that if I felt that way, there must be a lot of other people who felt that way. So that was my personal experience. And I thought, you know, there really should be somebody in the office to talk to when this is going on. You know, someone to help you understand what the doctor's saying, help you make a decision, calm you down. But it was just a personal experience at that point. But my first job out of social work school was working with disabled college students. And in those days, most of them had been taught at home didn't get to go out, there was no accessible public transportation, you couldn't get into a movie theater in a wheelchair, things like that. And I found many of them had very tight relationships with pets too. And I said, hmm, what's going on? And I started to think about it and I realized that in addition to service dogs, if you're home alone, everybody else is out mowing the lawn or going to the movies, who's home with you all the time? Who thinks you're wonderful just exactly the way you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you use to get around? You're a pet. And I seem to be the one that always realized that one of our students was grieving the loss of a pet. And I thought, boy, that's weird. <laughs> you know, why, why is it that I'm the only one that sees this? And I thought again about that idea of having a social worker in a veterinary setting. So fast forward a few years, I found somebody who would let me give that a try. Uh, this was the Animal Medical Center in New York City. Uh, we made it up from scratch. We didn't know anybody else who was doing it except one person at University of Pennsylvania who seemed to be having a very different experience than I was having. I was very lucky that I had a lot of support there and that we put this whole field together by ourselves. The thing that was surprising was that I was hired to uh, talk to clients who were anxious to teach young veterinarians how to talk to upset clients because they weren't taught that at all in those days. And that was it. But what I saw was the third leg of the stool, which was how stressed out all the vets, and techs, and everybody else was. I went to the higher-ups and I said, do you realize how stressed out your staff is? And they said, really? And I said, yeah, they're like really tearing their hair out. They're coming here from other cities. They don't have any money. They're working tremendous hours. They're really anxious. And they thought not only was that normal, 
that was good, you know, ordeal by fire makes you a better veterinarian. So I just started teaching stress management uh, and all of the skills that go with that. And frankly, I think communication skills, dealing with clients and your coworkers, and stress management are pretty closely related because if you have the skills to do your job, then it's much less stressful. That's really interesting. And I, I can imagine, I mean, as I'm not a veterinarian, of course, but I am a pet owner and I know that when I go to the vet, I do the exact same thing that you mentioned, where if the vet's taking a really long time, I start going through the list in my head of things that could be wrong. <laughs> and I've, cre I've created all of those issues before they've said anything. Um, and then also, I feel like, I mean, for, for humans, it's, I find it so vitally important for them to have an advocate when they go into any sort of medical setting, because it's so hard to remember everything that they need to know. And especially if it's a tough medical situation, it's so hard for them to know, you know, to hear everything that they need to hear, especially in something like a cancer diagnosis or a surgery and, and, and having someone else there to sort of be a, I don't want to say a voice of reason, but almost someone there to, to hear it as well. You'll get almost twice the information, you know, because you're just going to miss things because you as the person going through it are so overwhelmed with just, your own personal experience. And I almost feel that way with pets. Like when I go in and I have to write myself little notes because when I go in, I'm like, don't forget to ask the vet this. Don't forget to ask the vet this. Similarly to when I go to the dermatologist, right? Like I want to make sure I cover all these different points and regularly I leave and I'm like, oh, I forgot about this or what'd she say about that? And so I can imagine that that role that you played was probably extremely helpful and, and, you know, very innovative. And I really applaud you for that. That, that. I bet that was really helpful to a lot of pet owners. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> thanks, Jordan. I, uh, I'm the same way. And I, after a few years, I realized I was just doing for all the pet lovers uh, what I would want somebody right. to do for me if I were stressed out. You know, it's exactly what you said. There's so much information coming at you. Some of it's in Latin. You know, they're using terms you haven't heard before. And frankly, when you're stressed out, it doesn't matter, you know, that you're an English major with a PhD, your just goes to sleep, right? And, and you forget the meanings of words. And, and I would be in the room. I knew, that, I knew that I had been in a veterinary setting too long when I realized that I thought BID was a word. <laughs> it's a concept. It's how often you give a dose. Uh, and we throw those terms around all the time, right. and I just got so used to it, I almost couldn't hear it anymore. I remember having a very long discussion with one guy about his dog's GI problems, which to me is a pretty common term, you know, in ordinary life. And we got to the end of our conversation, and he said, by the way, what is a GI problem? So what I discovered in veterinary medicine is that veterinarians and medical people use terms that sound like regular English, but actually have a different meaning medically. So they would say, your dog is depressed. And I remember, again, having a long conversation with a client who I finally realized, felt she was getting a double message. The veterinarian told her her dog was depressed, but they wouldn't let her take the dog home. And in her mind, depressed meant sad. Well, who wouldn't be sad locked up in a hospital but now they're refusing to let her take the dog home when they are explaining that's what the problem is. Of course, in veterinary medicine, and I guess in human medicine, it really means slowed down, not standing up much, uh, not having the energy you would normally have. There are lots of terms like that. And again, once you're uh, in that situation, you're already stressed, maybe even before you come in, uh, you're having problems with your spouse who doesn't think you should be spending the money on this. Your mother-in-law thinks that if you would just get rid of the dog, maybe you'd finally give her grandchildren. I mean, your next-door neighbor thinks you weren't doing enough. It's so much emotion to carry. And when I started in the 80s, veterinarians were not taught any of this. In fact, they were pretty much told to not talk to the clients, to just tell the clients what was going to happen, and the clients should just accept that. Uh, and you should never, never, never cry in front of a client. Oh, my goodness. Well, it turns out that's okay, too. You know, if you're crying more than the client, then maybe you're crying for your issues. But it's okay to show some emotion, have some compassion, 
as long as you can also walk away from it a little bit and get some some distance so that you can function. Those are really good pieces of advice, and I think that's um, that, that's very true. And yeah, somebody not knowing a GI issue is gastrointestinal, and, and us thinking it's something else and what it means in the veterinary profession. Depressed is a really good analogy for that. That's um, so interesting. You know, we're we're so grateful for the for the work that you do for vets for vets and the weekly support group that you have and um, and that you run. And I'm sort of curious, what are you finding, you know, with all of your experience in the veterinary profession, what are you finding are areas where colleagues are struggling with currently? I mean, I'm sure that you've seen it sort of um, take different paths throughout your career, just as you mentioned in the 80s, the way that they respond, the way that veterinarians would respond or be challenged with some things would be probably a little different than what they are now. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, where, what are the areas where you're seeing call, veterinary colleagues struggle currently? I think the biggest change I'm seeing now is the change in the way veterinary medicine is practiced. Whereas it used to be um, that they had no training with human beings and that was an issue, now they do. And they come in often with stress management uh, experience. But Veterinary medicine is becoming corporatized um, instead of having small mom and pop kinds of practices. They're getting either larger or they're being bought up by big organizations who have their own ways of doing things. We certainly know that veterinarians are coming out with a great deal of debt and they're not going to make a great deal of money when they're in the workplace to pay that debt off with. We there's a lot of debate uh, among my colleagues about what the underlying problems are, and there's no real agreement. Some people think we're graduating too many veterinarians and there just aren't enough good jobs. Some people think we're attracting some fragile people who need so much support that they just can't function without it. Um, I don't know that that is all of the problem by a long shot. I do think the kind of people who go into veterinary medicine are a little different now. When I started, it was, I used to say, Iowa farm boys, now plunked down in the big city of New York. Now it's male or female, it's people who grew up with pets. So you don't have to explain to them why pets are important, but they do seem to take issues of euthanasia and some other things much more to heart than they used to. They're, I'm also hearing a lot more people talk about imposter syndrome, that feeling that if people only knew how uh, imperfect you were, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. It's taking every bad outcome or less than optimal outcome so much to heart that you're paralyzed for days afterwards and sometimes for months. I hear from people who have been in practice for a while who say, you know, instead of getting more and more confident in my skills, I'm getting less and less confident. I, I just don't ever want to do surgery again. And often it's not because of one bad case. It's something that's building up over time. It's always been true, I think, that many veterinarians work kind of alone. Even if you're in a practice with several other veterinarians, you're alone in the room with the client. And clients are much more willing to tell you what they really think, to question your, um, your ideas. They have other sources of information like the internet. They've always talked to their friends. Uh, they may talk to their local veterinarian if you're a specialist and compare notes there. And the veterinarian, instead of being able to just say, well, I've got a white coat on, I'm telling you, this is how it is and here's what we're going to do, gets a lot of pushback. Now, often this is just a, a loving, devoted, well-informed pet lover who wants to bring up other ideas or wants to know how you got to that decision. But if you're on the receiving end of it, it can feel as though somebody's questioning everything about you and they don't even like you because otherwise, why would they even ask you these things? There's also an issue with social media uh, we've all heard stories of veterinarians and veterinary teams who've been bullied on social media uh, 
obviously nobody's perfect, we all make mistakes, but now your mistakes can be brought up publicly and often it's not really a mistake. I read all the time from veterinary practices, techs and other people saying, uh, we got this very nasty review on uh, such and such a site. We went back to see what could have gone wrong and we can't even find a record that this person or this pet was ever in our practice. They probably have the wrong name, but we can't get this person to take it down. Now all her friends are writing in that we're terrible and they haven't been here either. So clearly feeling that you owe a lot to, uh, to everybody involved, that you recognize you're an imperfect person, being afraid that you're going to get bullied either by your clients or maybe by your coworkers, really takes a lot out of people. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this field is what's called compassion fatigue or burnout. And I, I can describe that and I will describe that, but I think there are other things going on in the whole veterinary team. Compassion fatigue is a term that was created by a psychologist named Charles Fagley. What he was talking about was the trauma that a person can get, not by being in the bad event personally, but by dealing with people who have been in a bad event, uh, is a secondary post-traumatic stress disorder. Compassion fatigue, using Charles Fagley's definition, would be a client comes running into your practice with a dog that's been hit by a car, is bleeding. So there's this dramatic scene, right? The client is crying, maybe screaming, begging you for help. They don't have any money. They left their wallet at home because they were out for a jog. They want you to save their pet at any price. So you're dealing with a medical situation, a financial situation, and a very serious emotional situation all at once. That can actually leave you somewhat traumatized. Maybe it brings up things from your past. Maybe it's just the, the sheer horror of the scene. It could be lots of things, right? And certainly if you have a few of those day after day after day, you can get, I'm gonna call it twitchy, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder involves things like being hypervigilant, you know, looking around all the time for danger jumping at loud noises, feeling that nobody understands what you went through, whether it's a war experience or 9-11 uh, or something like that, you can get a kind of secondary trauma if you are a first responder at one of those scenes or a social worker or a clergy person. You can get secondary post-traumatic stress disorder from just hearing about horrible accidents that happened in your town. So you can understand that if you're a veterinarian and you have to deal with high emotion, uh, terrible scenes, being able to, unable to help somebody who is really in distress or an animal really in distress, you can see how someone might get a kind of secondary trauma from that. Burnout is another term for work stress, but to me, it's different from compassion fatigue and some other terms, because to me, it means caring until you just can't care anymore and you go numb, kind of like a burnt out match, right? The things that cause it are lots of changes. So for example, if you're working in a small practice, you know, with somebody that you know well, and that person sells the practice to a corporation, the corporation wants a lot of changes in how you do things, that can really throw you off. Uh, or it might be that you're in the same place, but they're increasing the hours because, as we mentioned, student debt and all the competition is leading people to have to work longer and longer hours. So you either have a, a situation where there was a lot of change or a lot of demand on you and not enough chance to really restore yourself. The things that help fix that are stability at work and very often just taking a vacation. So an example would be, uh, this actually happened where I used to work. 
uh, a tech would say to me, you know, we've had a lot of euthanasias lately, and I know that it's my job to help out, but I can only take so much of this. So if I've already done one that day and I hear an overhead page for a technician uh, that I know is going to be for euthanasia, I go hide in the ladies' room and let somebody else do it. That's burning, right? It's just getting to the point where you have to shut yourself off because it's too painful or where maybe you didn't want to shut yourself off, but you just find you've gone numb. You just don't seem to care as much. You're just going through the motions at work. That's burnout. And it's different from compassion fatigue to me. There's another situation that I have seen in veterinary communities that feels different to me than either the strict definition of compassion fatigue or burnout. I see veterinarians and their staffs being so deeply committed that they can't stop caring. Instead of turning off, they are just burning full bore all the time. Veterinary teams and their staffs usually have very high intelligence, a deep commitment to animals, and a strong work ethic. But sometimes this goes to the dark side. Intelligence becomes endless study, just one more article. I just, I just have to stay here and figure out one more thing. Commitment to animals and helping them becomes an obsession. I have to save them all. I have to be here at all times. And the work ethic becomes a sick kind of perfectionism. We all want to do our best. We all want to save everything and not mess up when lives are at stake. But we're human beings and we can drive ourselves to the point of feeling like total failures if anything goes wrong. So I was giving a talk uh, one day about burnout and compassion fatigue and I thought, what is this other thing I'm seeing? What, what's, a, what's an image for this? And I remembered a movie that I had seen long ago called The Red Shoes. If you don't mind, let me explain this to you. The Red Shoes comes from a story by Hans Christian Andersen. His story is extremely dark and kind of gory. But the movie is about a ballerina who finds herself caught between love and work. She has a mentor who says he will make her the greatest ballerina of all time if she gives up the entire rest of her life to become his muse and his, his great ballerina. She falls in love with the composer of this new ballet that he's created for, for her. And of course, the young composer says, why don't you dance a little on the side and just be my love and be with me? Now, what is the ballet? The ballet is based on the Hans Christian Andersen story of the red shoes. The basic story here is that a ballerina goes to a fair and she sees a pair of beautiful red ballet slippers. She must have them. And we, the audience, can tell that the guy who's selling her these ballet slippers is up to no good. There's something very fishy about him. He's some sort of wizard. She puts on the shoes and immediately feels like the best in the world. And she is dancing as she has never danced before. She dances all through the fair. She feels fantastic. She then dances uh, into the woods and decides, you know, actually, I, I think I'm a little tired. I think I'd like to go home. She tries to go home. Her mother's standing in the doorway, but the shoes won't allow her to stop. So they dance her out of town and into the next town where she tries to stop at a church. And the priest is there with his arms out. She's trying to get to him and the shoes force her to dance away. And in the end, these enchanted shoes force her to dance until she collapses. And that felt much more like what I was seeing with veterinarians in their teams. It's this intelligence and work ethic and commitment that won't stop. Even when you begin to realize that it's hurting you, even when you want to stop, you are driven to keep going. 
you come home at night, you have to read more articles. You uh, don't want to talk to anybody in your house because they don't understand what you're going through. And you, uh, you just worry all night long about your cases. You may try some things. Oh, I'll, um, I'll just wash my hands at the end of the day and uh, let it be. And for some people that can work. And it's actually something I recommend. But you might find yourself at home still brooding over the case from yesterday or the client contact you had last week. If anybody says anything to you, you keep it to your heart and say, oh, what have I done wrong? It must be me. Or you might get very angry at your clients and think it's all them, but you can't stop. That is what I call red shoe syndrome. So interesting. That's a really interesting take on, on, you know, issues that we're seeing in the profession and that sort of concept that I think we probably all have in our lives and in our own ways, which is that we know that something's not healthy for us, but we just can't stop for one reason or another. Yes, it's different from an addiction. You know, an addiction mm -hmm. is something that at least in the beginning gives you pleasure. And this does too, in a way. When you hear about what I call red shoe syndrome, which is a term that I made up to cover this commitment that drives you, and addiction, I think they're different, even though they could sound a little the same. You are doing something that you know is bad for you. The difference is, I think, addictions take over your life, and most people who have them wish they could get off. You know, if you're gambling too much, if you're drinking too much, you may be aware that this is really hurting you. It's hurting your family. Other people can see it. Um, you're getting negative feedback because you're doing this thing and you wish you could stop. With what I call red shoe syndrome, which again is a term that I made up to cover this passionate commitment. With red shoe syndrome, you don't want to stop. Here's the thing. If you're smarter than most other people or more talented than most other people, it's very easy to persuade yourself that you need to stay on the job at all times because nobody else does it as well as you do. If you go home, lives will be lost. The practice will fall into chaos and ruin. Nobody will set the surgery up for tomorrow correctly, whatever it is you're telling yourself. And you're probably getting, instead of negative feedback, positive feedback. Wow, you work so hard, you're so great, what a fabulous surgeon. So you're getting positive feedback from yourself or from the people around you for you to keep doing what you're doing. So it's very hard, even if you recognize that this has become destructive in your life, it's very hard to take a step back. I love that you've sort of been able to identify this and that you're, you're a your identification of this red red shoes syndrome that you've that you that you're calling it um, came out of you sort of going to give a talk and thinking there's got to be something else there you know and it's always interesting to me how in life we're led down these paths and it just depends on what else is going in our life going on in our life that we are sometimes open to receiving that information and exploring more and sometimes not right and so. Are there ways that you're seeing how veterinary colleagues are um, improving on this or rather how they are, you know, able to help themselves out of the red shoes per se? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, in a perfect world, you wouldn't put the red shoes on in the first place, right? Right, of course. You know, but if you see that you are getting caught up at work and you don't want to come home. And when you do come home, you only think about work, whether it's a client that upset you or a case that went wrong or a case that went right. Uh, you need to build in some things that will alert you that you're in that space and force you to have more balance. So the thing that I mentioned about washing your hands, veterinarians, medical people wash their hands all the time. If you mentally say to yourself, I am washing away the last encounter I had, good, bad, and different. I'm starting over fresh with this new situation. Do that mindfully, and it can help you. Setting up activities to let yourself go home and be in a different place. So if you watched Mr. Rogers when you were growing up, 
Remember, he would come in in one outfit. He would change into a sweater for the time he was with you. And then before he went home, he took off the sweater and those shoes and put on a different shirt or jacket and different shoes. You can do that yourself. Get out of your scrubs, change into a different outfit, remind yourself that you are going home. One person told me that when uh, she hits the first stoplight on the way home, she tells herself, stop. That means I'm going to stop thinking about work. Another person told me that he literally takes the top off the garbage can outside the back door and pretends to throw in all the stuff from work and puts the lid on the garbage can to help him make a break between work and home. Make yourself, you know, set, set timers. Uh, if you can't trust yourself to go home, then appoint a minder for yourself. Get somebody who will remind you to, to stop reading, stop doing, stop your paperwork and go home. Uh, when you get home, try to be really present for your own pets and your own family. Uh, develop activities that you really care about so that you feel committed enough to do them. Uh, one oncologist I knew was really teetering on the brink of, you know, red shoe syndrome and collapse in general. Um, he was going home every night and finding that he didn't even want to interact with his family because he'd spent all day with people whose pets were dying of cancer. He was uh, staying late to, to play video games and things like that. So he took up martial arts. And these days, he treats pets with cancer and their people and uh, does that part-time. And the rest of the time, he teaches judo to at-risk youth. And he's a much happier, healthy guy than he was. That's really interesting and probably some really helpful tips. Finding, sort of finding ways to find balance. And, you know, I like the example of the, of the veterinarian who comes home and opens a trash can and then just puts that in there and puts the lid on it. It's almost the metaphorical, I'm putting, my, I'm, I'm putting that out there outside where it lives and it doesn't come inside with me, right? Exactly. People uh, who uh, are list makers tell me that that's very helpful, that if they sit at work and say, oh, just one more, just one more, that there's no way to make themselves go home. But if they make a list, uh, here's what I need to get done today, and you check it off. And when you do things that weren't even on the list, you put them on the list and just so you can check them off. It gives you a feeling of accomplishment for the day. And you really have to remind yourself or have other people remind you that you're a mortal human being. And you, I always think of marathon runners, you know. You're not going to be a better marathon runner if you try running 24 hours a day. Everybody has to stop at some point and eat and sleep and, you know, recover so they can get up and run again tomorrow. And veterinary practice is the same way. Right. And it's important for people to realize that just, you know, just because you put these parameters or these sort of helpful tips in place for your own life, it doesn't mean that you are less of a caring person. It doesn't mean that you care less about your patients or that you care less about your clients. It, it just simply means, I would say similarly to, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first. And if your oxygen mask isn't on, there's no way that you can continue to help others. Would you say that's a good analogy? Yes, I think it's a great analogy. Well, I you know, really appreciate you sharing this idea with us because I think that it's one we're so accustomed to hearing compassion fatigue. We're so accustomed to hearing burnout. And, and I think that one of the scariest things for people is when they're struggling or they feel so overwhelmed is when they have no concept of what it is, right? It just feels so intangible in the moment that it's almost impossible to put their hands around it or their mind around it because it's just this very large thing. And so I love the idea of, of being able to put this idea of red shoes syndrome onto it because then it helps you, you know, we fear what we don't know. And if you know this, then you're able to say, okay, I know that this is what it is. I, I'm able to identify it in this way. And therefore I'm able to put these parameters in place and these things in place to help me, you know, improve my life and also, you know, be a better veterinarian because of it, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about that I have found incredibly helpful is our Vets for Vets support group. 
Vets for Vets programs offer lots of support and the VIN Foundation does. What's really useful about that group um, is that we get together once a week and we talk about what's going on in our veterinary lives, our work lives. And you can often get the idea that you're the only one that's experiencing this. Everybody else is confident. Everybody else is happy. You're the only one that has second thoughts. And whether you're a fairly new grad who did really well in school and is now kind of unhappy at at her first or second job, or whether you uh, are a practice owner who's been at it for 30 years and is starting not to love it anymore, again, you think it's just you. Um, And when you get together with other people who care passionately about what they do, but are also examining their lives, and you get some feedback, hey, um, that is really not a healthy work situation you're in, or uh, that kind of contract uh, doesn't make any sense, or uh, no clients really shouldn't be uh, talking to you that way, and bosses shouldn't be going behind your back, whatever it is that's stressing you out. To have a group of people who don't know you and are not going to just tell you what you want to hear, but who are going through similar kinds of problems and can look at it a little more objectively is so helpful. So I, I recommend if, if uh, your own self-care and trying to set limits, that kind of thing is not enough, A, certainly don't be afraid to, to get therapy, but consider finding a group of like-minded veterinarians that you can talk to and compare notes with. Yeah, our Vets for Vets, the VIN Foundation Vets for Vets uh, program resource is completely free for all veterinarians and veterinary students. Uh, you do, some people think you need to be a VIN member to access the VIN Foundation resources. That's not the case. All of our resources are completely free and Vets for Vets is one of them. And Vets for Vets helps with addiction, stress, feeling overwhelmed, if you just need someone to talk to. And what I really love about Vets for Vets is that it's extremely tangible. You know, it's not just a Facebook group that you post something on. It's really one-on-one and when somebody first reaches out to Vets for Vets, they immediately have a one-on-one interaction with Dr. Bree Montana. And and then from there, they decide what's the best with, with Dr. Montana, what's the best course of action? Do they need immediate support and triage? Do they, you know, do you need an online support group like the one, you know, the one that you're running, Susan, or is it one-on-one just conversations? And, you know, it's amazing what we find is for a lot of people, sometimes even just you can either email or, or call in and we'll put that information in the show notes. But what's amazing is for some people, we find that just emailing in or calling in for them is extremely therapeutic because it's just that idea that somebody can listen to them. I mean, I remember in the times that I've gone to therapy, I found the most benefit just in being able to say something out loud because when you say it inside your own head, it sounds very different. <laughs> and when Absolutely you say true. it out loud, it's just, there's almost like this therapeutic approach to that, whoa. And, and sometimes you think, wow, that's actually a lot crazier than it sounded inside my head <laughs> when you were justifying it in your own head, right? And then you said it out loud and you're like, well, that, there's a lot of weight here and I really need to pay attention to this, you know, or vice versa, right? It might sound very, very scary in your head. And then you say it out loud and to your point, Susan, others in the group might say, oh yeah, I've totally been there, done that. This is how, what I used or this is how I dealt with it, right? So I think the most important thing is just that everyone knows that they are not alone. And um, the Vets for Vets group is run by, you know, yourself, Dr. Bree Montana, all veterinarians and veterinary professionally focused. So it's, it's really, really a great resource out there. And I feel extremely, offers extremely tangible support. You know, um, building on what you just said, I uh, recently cleaned up the email list for the group because I'd had a computer crash. So I wanted to make sure, you know, I had all the people who still wanted to be on it. And I can't tell you how many people wrote in. They, they either have never been to a meeting or they haven't been to a meeting in two years. And I said, please keep me on this mailing list because I just feel connected to the rest of the veterinary profession this way. And I love the articles and I love hearing what everybody's doing. So uh, to your point, sometimes just, you know, talking to Brie one time because she's amazing uh, or, you know, anybody else even one time can make you feel less alone, that it's not just you. It's not all in your head. You're not making this up. Uh, you're not weak, you know, you really, there's really unpleasant stuff going on, and you can then start thinking about, 
you know, what, what can I change myself? Should I be thinking about getting another job or a different contract or whatever? But the resources that the Bin Foundation provides are to me amazing. And to get back all the way to the beginning of our conversation, it's based on people's real experiences and then creating programs to meet people's needs rather than saying, well, here's what we do, fit yourself in. You know, if, if there's a need, we'll try to address it, whatever it is. Right, right. And I really, I really like what you were saying about just the feeling of not alone. I mean, a lot of people feel like our problems can feel so overwhelming and, oh my gosh, I'm kind of embarrassed because there's no way anyone's been through this. And I can assure you someone for sure has, and Bets for Vets has probably seen it before. I, it's, it's been, it's run the gamut and whatever it is, you're not alone and, and you're not the only one that's gone through this. And if it feels horrifically bad, it's, it's felt horrifically bad to someone else before as well. And they're at the other end of the tunnel. And so I think that's some great advice, Susan, in terms of just, you know, hearing each other speak and, and, and being able to leapfrog our mistakes through others' advice. And, you know, it doesn't have to be as painful for everybody because others have gone through a lot of it before. I think I would also add um, that there's hope. Uh, we've now had this group, and that's my closest connection to uh, the veterinary field. We've had the group since 2015, so more than five years now. And we've seen a lot of people come in and say, you know, <clears throat> I have a reasonably good job. I just, I don't know, something's off. It might take them a couple of years to decide yeah, they really don't want to be at that place anymore. If they leave, where would they go? What should they do? And to hear back from them when they've sold their practice finally or moved to another state or, you know, whatever change they made and to see how happy they are or to just hear them come back and say, I'm so grateful for this group. You don't know what you've done for me. I just felt so confused and alone and I, I just feel like I'm on much more solid footing now is such a pleasure. The group and, and all of the services that the foundation offers, I think really work. So if you feel you're in kind of a dark place now, have hope. We can help you get out of this, you know, whether it takes a week or two years. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's all completely confidential. So nobody else knows. Nobody knows from your work environment. No one knows from your home environment. It's all completely confidential. And there is so much hope. And, and we do hear so many wonderful stories of people feeling so grateful. And that's wonderful. And a, a lot of that is just so much because of the hard work that you do, Susan. And we are so, so grateful for your hard work on the ongoing basis. I mean, it's it's really incredible. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I feel unbelievably lucky to, to be with this group of people. I can't tell you that both the people in the group and the people that I work with at Vets for Vets, such a gift. So let's, uh, let's take a little bit of a lighter note here. One question that I love to ask people is, what is your secret talent? What is something that you enjoy doing or that um, people might not know that you enjoy doing? Um, give us a little insight into what makes something that you, that Dr. Susan Cohen enjoys that other people might not know. I think probably my uh, most visible hobby is singing in a choir. I'm a tenor, even though I'm a woman. <clears throat> I've been singing tenor since I was about 14. I just had one of those low voices. And uh, I found, I promised myself that since I hadn't sung since college, that when I retired from full-time work, I would find anywhere that would have me. I, I didn't care what they were singing. I just wanted to sing again. And luckily for me, uh, half a block away, I found a conservatory of music and they're always short of tenors. So even though it's a pretty high powered group, I got in and I've been doing that uh, for the last nine years now. And it's, it's such a joy for me to be able to sing with other people. And it's been very good for my brain because uh, when I was 14 or 22, uh, all I had to do was sing through the music a couple of times and I could memorize it. But here we don't rehearse uh, more than once a week. Uh, and so you have to force yourself to learn to read music at least a little bit and practice at home. And I think that's uh, been really good for stretching my, my brain. 
so it's a great pleasure to sing tenor with a, a very fine group that sings wonderful, wonderful pieces. We are uh, currently um, having to sing uh, remotely on Zoom uh, because we're not able to be together. But actually, I just joined a virtual choir for one performance. Um, and uh, I will let you know when that's, when that's happening. Um, it's just, there's so many good things about singing uh, and singing in a group. Your brain waves get in sync, your heart rate gets in sync, um, your endorphins go way up, your feel-good hormones. Um, so it's been a great gift to me, to a great pleasure to be able to sing again. That's so wonderful. What a, what a great hobby. I sang in choir in high school, but it's been quite a while for me. And I, what a, you know, I applaud you for keeping a hobby that um, also benefits you in, in so many ways. And I bet that, you know, similarly to the ideas that you're giving to veterinary colleagues, it seems like that's probably something that offers you a lot of joy in the midst of work and other things. You know, thank you for saying that. It, it, it's a lot of work, and it's a real commitment. And there are some money nights, you know, you start to approach, you say, oh, I have so much to do. I have this other thing. You know, all right, I'll go. It Making yourself do those things that you love and are good for you, I, I always feel excited and stimulated glad that I went. That's for all of us. There are always other things we could be doing, but self-care is something we have to put on the schedule. Uh, joy, pleasure, you know, whatever, whatever it is for you, whether it's physical activity or painting or, you know, whatever you like to do, you must make time for it if you want to stay healthy. That's very, very true. We have got to take care of ourselves and self-love is extremely important. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and to, for all of your work with Vets for Vets and your effort just in putting forth and, and having this conversation with us today. We are very fortunate to have you be part of the Vets for Vets team and veterinary colleagues out there that I know are uh, very appreciative for all your ongoing support and knowledge. Thank you so much, Jordan. You know, I feel I'm the lucky one here. I feel the same way. I feel that I'm the lucky one every day and I'm so grateful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.